Welcome to Save It for the Blind podcast. We're here with Jeremiah Dowdy with Field to Plate. Um, thanks for coming on, Jeremiah, and uh, kind of tell us about what you're doing in the uh, the food space and kind of in the R3 recruitment. Yeah. So my name is Jeremiah Dowdy, born and raised in Southern California. So thanks for having me on on a California waterfowl podcast because I'm, I'm sick of getting on the Alabama ones where we're not laying in the middle <laughs> of the field shooting a million greenheads. Um but yeah, so uh, I am a wild game chef based out of California, and I travel around and I write recipes for a lot of outdoor companies, um, from Traeger to Vortex to uh, Mossy Oak and fill in the blank. Um, and so it's kind of a kind of a cool gig. And here in California, I've been blessed to be able to be part of the R three program. A lot of listeners know what that is, uh, but it's a federally granted program that reintroduces hunters maintains hunters and we uh, can recruit new hunters into the hunting industry. And so it's a cool program that is funded um, where we can get youth, veterans, women, uh, adults out hunting for the first time, just like we finally are able to have a free hunting day, which I think was awesome where we can get people out there to hunt. And we took, you know, you can take people out in the blind with you for a free hunting day, which to me is pretty awesome that we can be a part of something like that in California. Cause I never thought I'd see that, you know, in my age. So. Yeah. And t- kind of tell us about your journey. You, you didn't grow up as a hunter, correct? No, I grew up as a bird hunter, okay. uh, born and raised as a bird hunter, started bird hunting when I was six years old. Uh, but down here in Southern California, it's not like we've got um, all your rice fields and all your stuff out, you know, in YOLO and stuff that you guys can go out and do that kind of stuff. Uh, we've got two places down here, San Jack, San Jacinto wildlife, as well as Worcester. And it's the draw system. And I mean, I put in for years and get one or two draws here or there. So dove was primarily what we hunted here in Southern California. We'd go to Colorado river and we would just drill dove, uh, for the opening season and we go for second season. And then when I turned 18, I realized like I got to do more than just shoot dove twice a year. So I taught myself how to waterfowl hunt, taught myself how to turkey hunt, quail hunt, chucker hunt, uh, got into some areas that have pheasant up in like Barstow Bakersfield area. And really kind of just dove headfirst into if it flies, you know, it goes on the grill, it dies type aspect and mentality. Um, and then fast forward to 2007, uh, I started getting really, really sick uh, eating food. Uh, and I worked in restaurants, high-end restaurants. And so you, as a chef and as a front of the house manager, getting sick eating food at a restaurant really isn't, you know, ideal and prime. So kind of give you the reader's digest version for any of you that are younger reader's digest was a book that came out. (laughs) Um, but through a lot of trial and error for over a year and a lot of, a lot of doctors found out that I was actually had a super rare case where I'm allergic to bovine fat. So I'm allergic to cows in a sense, uh, or domesticated bison, buffalo, anything that falls within that, that bovine realm, uh, highly allergic where it makes me like violently ill, um, for about eight to 12 hours. And then it's like a four day recovery after that. So think about like the worst flu you've ever had in your life, uh, 30 minutes after you eat, um, <laughs> anything that had that, that contains bovine fat. And in, in that realm, there's a lot of oils, fats, fill in the blanks of all these different things that kind of categorize with that same enzyme that my body's allergic to. And so for me, it kind of was like, okay, great. Well, I was born and raised an Irish kid, you know, eating meat and taters every single night. Um, my mom would go to Costco and buy like those 40 pound 
you know, giant things of ground beef and that's what we eat, you know, as a family of seven kids. And it kind of threw my whole world into this, just what do I do? What's next? Cause you can only eat so much chicken and you know, you can only shoot so many ducks down here in Southern California. You can only shoot so many quail, so many ducks, so many pheasants, so many quail. Um, and really how many ribs can you eat in a week? And so I was actually getting ready to turkey hunt, see all the turkey feathers behind me, uh, for fall season, San Diego opened up a fall season in 2006. And so I was going out to archery hunt and getting ready and I'm at the, the range down here by us. And this old timer gets out of his car, out of his truck, walks over, opens up his bow and it's all camouflaged out. He's got like a Sitka shirt on. And I'm like, this has been Sitka just, you know, just hit the market. So I was like, Oh my gosh, this dude must hunt because I'm in Southern California. No one comes out camouflage unless it says like Gucci on it. Right. <laughs> and so I'm like, dude, where are you going? And he's like, Oh, I'm getting ready to go to Wyoming to go hunt antelope. I was like, dude, I wish I could hunt, you know, big game, but it's so expensive. It's so, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, I'm a bird hunter since I was six years old. There's, there's, I know how to work a shotgun better than anybody else, you know? And He's like, dude, the tags are $38 for a doe tag. And that includes license and tag in Wyoming. I grabbed my bow, put it back in my case, locked it all, walked back to my truck, drove home, went online and bought four over-the-counter tags because that's back when you could buy four hmm. over-the-counter like, uh, doe tags. Called up my buddy who's a fireman. I said, hey, what are you doing next week? He goes, nothing. It's my seven days off. I was like, you want to drive to Wyoming and shoot <laughs> antelope with me? He's like, oh, we don't know how to big game hunt. He's my bird hunting buddy. I was like, nope. So we, we literally packed in his Honda Civic and we drove 18 hours to Casper, got there at two o'clock in the morning, slept in the Walmart parking lot in Casper when it's snowing, freezing our butts off. Um, we go out and we hunt public land for six days and just beat the crap out of ourselves. Um, we don't know what we're doing. You know, we got in on herds and herds, but we're, we're trying to hunt them like deer when they're not deer. Uh, we didn't realize that they have the best eyesight out of the entire big game community. And finally we filled tags. We took it to a butcher. We slept in a hotel that night cause we were sick of sleeping in tents, freezing our butts off and get home. And I hated the meat. I was like, this is disgusting. Like I did all that work, all that effort for meat that I don't like. But again, that mentality, a lot of us have as hunters growing up with dads who also hunted was like, if you kill it, you eat it. If, if you took the effort and time to take its life, you're going to eat every ounce of that. Uh, me and my brother shot a crow in our backyard and we were like 13 and it's a city crow. So it's disgusting eating trash garbage, <laughs> probably dead animals inside the road. And we were in the backyard with pellet guns and popped one off. And my dad comes home from work and there's all these crows. Cause you know, if you ever shoot a crow, it's like a murder above your house, right? They just caw, 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 yeah. crazy. My dad's like, who shot a crow? And my little brother, like, well, I don't know. I don't know who shot a crow. He goes out and finds it in the bushes and he's like, okay, eat it. And I remember that vividly remember that in my mind, like, most disgusting, foul, overcooked with just, you know, seasoning salt on it. And I'm like, okay, I got to, I got to make this antelope taste good. Come on. You work in a restaurant, you cook for a living. How, how are you going to make this taste good? And so started really understanding the flavor profiles that went into this antelope and that strong sage flavor from it, you know, primarily eating that in its diet. And I made a meal for my, at time, my two-year-old daughter, and my wife, and they're like, this is good. I was like, this is good. And that's kind of where that mindset switched for me all of a sudden. Like, hey, there's nobody out there teaching adults how to do this. We have so many programs for little kids 
to go out and learn how to hunt, but there's no one who's going to teach, you know, a 30 year old dude to go shoot an antelope because it's, that's my spot. That's my whatever. And so I kind of, from that moment founded from field to plate where I said, there's gotta be a better way. There's gotta be someone to teach adults. Cause this is really before YouTube was like full of just people doing what they're doing on YouTube now. Right. And fast forward to today, you know, that's, I, I quit my job and I'm doing this full time teaching training. You know, I've taken out 400 brand new adult hunters. Um, that's brand new within five, the, the past five years have taken out for over 400, 406 brand new adult hunters. Um, pro, there's about 30% of those, which are female. The rest are, I mean, from the youngest being 18 to the oldest being, I just took out an 83 year old for his first hunt ever. And so you look at where I started struggling, you know, when I was gutting that antelope, I had a little pocket knife for him. I got, <laughs> when I got 13, you know, that pocket knife, the Swiss army that has like the toothpick and the tweezers. Yeah. And the, that's what I'm out there gutting this antelope with that. I'd probably whittled a million sticks with and never sharpened it. And I'm like, this is stupid. Why do, why do people hunt? Like give me a bird where I can just shove my thumb in there, pluck it. You know, like that's it. I don't need a knife to clean a bird. And now I look at where I am today and walking people through the process of this is what it means hands on to really be involved with your food and what it means to change who you are as a person from, from the inside out and respect that animal with every single ounce of being and not just breasting your bird, not just taking the back straps and grinding the rest of the deer. There's, there's a process to this animal. And that is kind of where I've made my niche in this outdoor industry is just being the guy that's going to answer a question respectfully. Um, you know, I get death threats daily and it's like, bring it on, you know, like if I'm going to die for, for what I'm doing, then it's going to be a bigger cause, you know? Yeah. So, and we, and we, <clears throat> we kind of do similar events like that. Um, obviously probably not as many, but on our own properties where we're, we're bringing these uh, adult onset hunters in and teaching them all about waterfowl hunting, how to cook a bird, clean it, and then where to go after our own event. Are your specific events, are they just in Southern California? Are you partnering with, uh, clubs and other properties outside of California? I mean, where, and what are these people going out and hunting? Yeah. So, uh, I'm working on a new waterfowl, uh, lodge in Washington. We're going to roll that out next year. Uh, it's a absolutely gorgeous lodge, uh, near the Columbia river, just Gadwall, Widgeon, the big birds coming in, uh, all just fat ducks. And we're working with that. Where we're going to do a whole class where it's coming in, learn how to learn the mechanics of a shotgun, how to hold it how to, you know, how we're not really aiming a shotgun, we're shooting a shotgun. So the mechanics of where to put it to your cheek versus your shoulder, where to look down, how to hold it, how to swing through, and then taking them out there and teaching them the next step. This is how you set a decoy spread. This is how you learn how to call. Cause guess what? When you're in deep water, you're not going to be doing the feeding call, right? I hate going out in deep water and hearing guys, I'm like, what, what are you doing? Like, have you ever heard a, you know, a duck doing that in deep water? And so teaching the whole process and then coming, coming back and teaching them how to the three really methods of cleaning a duck. So skinning a duck, breasting a duck, plucking a duck. What are those three methods and how do they look? And then applying that to the kitchen, you'll take your duck and cook your duck. Um, you're going to cook a skin duck recipe. You're going to click a, a pluck duck recipe and you're going to cook a breasted duck recipe and how it applies to what that duck is and how to not mask that flavor, but enhance it. So I've got waterfowl classes. I've got uh, whitetail classes that we do a lot of stuff in Texas just because you have, I have more free range in Texas. Um, and there's these, you know, 40,000 acre low fence ranchers 
that are given like 200 deer tags that they have to fill every single year. Government says kill 200 deer. They say, okay, so uh, we can take people in there and shoot pretty much whatever we want. So go in there and shoot a bunch of does because it's a meat class and there's no real like, oh, well, his was bigger than, you know, than this and that. A doe is a doe. Yeah. Um, we do hog classes. Uh, I've taken out celebrities, taken out sports stars on hog classes. We're getting together uh, a hockey class for some of the uh, LA Kings guys after season, hopefully after they win the Stanley cup. Sorry for all you sucky shark fans in the Northern California area. <laughs> um, but we are um, kind of just doing that. There's also some wild Turkey stuff that we've got lined up for Florida, um, Alabama, Tennessee, Texas. So it's kind of this whole gambit of, if you want to learn it, we're going to find somewhere for you to learn it. Uh, I still do that antelope hunt every year. So it's been 10 years doing that antelope hunt. And I still take out four to five brand new hunters every year with me on that trip. That's my personal trip and teach them how to hunt antelope and, and how to process the antelope and learn the whole process. So for me, it's, it's kind of this nonstop. But then here in Southern California, I work along with the department of fish and wildlife uh, where we do the youth hunt. So we've got a youth pheasant hunt coming up actually this weekend in Blythe, California, which is the Robinson Memorial pheasant hunt, which Danny Robinson was a huge advocate on youth hunting here in Southern California him and his partner, Mary, but they both passed away of cancer. Um, so we're doing this memorial hunt for them. We also have got some other pheasant and duck stuff, um, California, as well as doing duck classes for Department of Fish and Wildlife in Arizona. So we're doing it down in Cibola, where we'll do like youth and women hunts in Cibola and teach them how to do the whole process with waterfowl as well. So, I mean, it's kind of nonstop. Did you get into cooking at a young age? How did your culinary kind of career start? Yeah, it's, it's food has always been a part. Cause again, like I said, I'm Irish, so you're always eating, right? You're always eating, you're always drinking. There's always food and there's always beer. And so in my family, there was always barbecue was a huge aspect to it. Like my grandpa was an amazing pit master. My dad, you know, it was all about the charcoals and, and then temperatures. And, and then when you would go in the house, the women were doing different cooking, but it was always women and men cooking full time. And then my house, I've got a million siblings. So my mom used to always have us cook a meal with her during the week since there was seven. And my sisters used to pay me to go cook with mom because they didn't want to cook. <laughs> so I would get their allowance to go cook. And so just learning this whole idea behind it. Um, then I got into high school and realized that when you cook for somebody, it really kind of opens up that door, uh, breaks all the barriers. And so if you really wanted to, you know, getting good with that girl was like, Hey, look, I baked you a cake or Hey, look, I made you a lasagna. And they're like, you made lasagna. Yeah. And they're like, Oh my gosh, you want to go on a date? Um, and so it kind of just flowed that, uh, went into, went into college and didn't take the culinary route, took the like, um, cultural anthropology, the, the study of humans and the study of culture and realized that all cultures are surrounded by food, right? You can look at a culture and define a culture by what it's eating. And, Yes, there's different costumes and different this and that, but at the core of it, when people think of Mexico, they think of food. When people think of the Middle East, they start thinking of food. When they think of France, they think of pastries and, you know, you start to look at these cultures based on food. So then I got into the restaurant industry and realized that no matter how many people were fighting, as soon as the food hit the table, everyone stopped fighting and they were enjoying their food. And I said, I got to do this. I got to get people happy about food. And so that's kind of where it all started and started developing recipes where people, you know, enjoyed it. And I got asked by uh, a magazine one time, they're like, what's the best part about being a chef? And I said, the silence after the first bite. 
because when everyone takes a bite, the table's silent, right? Even think about Thanksgiving, it's, and then the first bite of turkey and mashed taters and everything goes in and all of a sudden it's quiet at the table for, for a split second. And everyone's minds are being flooded with emotions and memories and endorphins of what it does. Just like you guys talking about sipping the whiskey. You were telling us a story of your dad pouring whiskey and you were telling, you were so excited about it. It's a drink. It's a drink. And so for food has the same mindset. And so as hunters, we do everything from wanting to understand that animal to the core of what its wings look like in the sky, what its beaks look like with a silhouette of, you know, the early morning sunrise. And then a lot of us are just breasted out and don't even care about it. For me, it's like that the story itself doesn't end until we're sitting around the table laughing. And I'm like, let me tell you about this duck that you guys are eating. And there's this whole involvement. You know, I've got two little girls and they went out and shot doves and, as they're plucking it for this, the second season, they're like, we're going to make this and we're going to make that. And then we're sitting around the table and they're talking to people about the dove hunt as they're eating dove. To me, that's, that's culture. We have defined a hunting culture. We have defined a group of people that are brought together by a bite of food. And I think that's, what's beautiful that it doesn't matter if I'm from Southern California and you're from Texas and you hate us because of, of, of our governor. <laughs> when I put food on the table, all of a sudden we have this common ground and it's, it's absolutely gorgeous. And, and what do you think the, the common hunter, you know, what do they screw up? Cause you do hear that of, Oh, I do go to Wyoming. I do shoot a couple antelope a year. I absolutely hate antelope and I give it away. And to me, it, antelope is my it's favorite, phenomenal. is oh, my favorite meat. Yeah. My top two now. Yeah, but, I mean, you hear that, and you hear guys say the story, hey, you know, you cook a duck, you wrap it in bacon, and then you fry it, and then you throw the duck away and eat the bacon, ha, 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 ha. And you're like, as a duck hunter, you're like, dude, it's it's you. You know, yeah. it's, the, it's the cook. I mean, so in your opinion, what are the things that people are getting wrong about, you know, waterfowl and game specific in terms of how are they preparing it and cooking it? I think – Cooking like their grandpa did. And, <laughs> and, and don't get me wrong, but the, the mindset behind food itself has changed. We're so quick on getting the newest gear to be better hunters, right? Just look at bow hunters. They spend millions of dollars a year getting the next bow, the next bow. You know, Bowtech came out with a new bow. The cams are a little bit smaller, so I got to get that Bowtech. Well, Matthews came out with one that weighs one ounce less. I got to get a Matthews. Uh, you know, or us as shotgun guys were like, oh, well, he – that new Benelli came out and the way that the, the gas works so much better in it, right? We're so quick to evolve in that. But when it comes to the culinary aspect of it, we're like, nah, it's gross. Grandpa said it's gross. So wrap it in bacon, make it into a popper, you know, or, oh, just breast it. Cause I don't have the time. And I think the biggest thing that the, that people realize is they, when they say that, that I don't have time, you, you had time to scout. You had time to get up at 3 a.m. You had time to go out and throw out 124 decoys. You had time to make sure you only had 25 shells in the blind with you. You had time to make sure your shotgun was clean. You had time to train your dog. You had time to take the effort to shoot those birds. You had the time to drive home and you get home. You're like, I don't got the time to, to, to do it, to deal with it. No, it's just a lazy mentality. And I think when people get by that, think about, you said antelope. I can't tell you how many times I would go into town and there would just be antelope in the back of people's truck. 80 degrees and they're in there eating Burger King. And I walk in, I'm like, who's antelope? Oh, it's mine. Antelope meat sucks anyway. Cause you're leaving it in the back of the truck 
for eight hours and 80 degrees where it's already starting to deteriorate. Yeah. Antelope have this really crazy thing where as soon as they die, they start to decompose faster than any other animal. You can shoot it. If any of you have shot an antelope, the moment you shoot it, their hair starts to fall out. Yeah. Everywhere. If you grab the feet and drag it two feet, the whole back of that antelope is bald. It's not like dragging a deer. We can drag a deer across, you know, the canyons and come at it. And it's like, Oh, I got a little scratch. No, it will be completely down to leather. If you draw, if you drag it 10 feet, well, that same thing that happens with its hair being released is the same thing where the body starts to decompose and it starts to create, you know, the blood sits, the, the hemoglobin sits, everything sits in this animal and it starts to just decompose. So the faster you get that animal cool and on ice, even if you don't have time to skin it, you know, we'll keep a big old huge ice chest full of, you know, 20 pound bags of ice when we go antelope hunting. If we're out and we're shooting three or four, we don't have time to break them down before we get back to camp. We'll throw that whole bag of ice into that cavity, get it as cold as you can, right? Same thing. You, I, I look at duck hunters. I watched some guy. He shot a bunch of early morning ducks, and he's just hanging them on the side of the blind where the sun's coming in. And those ducks are just cooking. The dude's sitting there till 2 o'clock, and that sun's just roasting those birds the whole time. And he gets back to the car. He's like, man, these, these birds stink. I'm like, well, no, duh. You know, like you, you literally – would you go to the grocery store and buy a whole chicken and just leave the chicken outside? And then at, you know, f- f- eight hours later, go, I'm going to cook this chicken. You're going to throw that chicken away. Right. And so as hunters, we're not taking the time to process our, our animals properly. Right. Like dove hunters, we'll throw it in our, in the, or pheasant hunters, chucker hunters, quail hunters, we throw it in our back and our, the heat of our back is cooking, you know, keeping those birds warm. It's like, I know it's not pretty for a picture, but rip, rip that head off. Get this, let that blood start to flow out of that bird. Cool that bird off. Ducks, the same sort of way. Put them down low. You know, if you have an ice chest, throw them in an ice chest. A lot of times I'll take like a fish stringer and keep it in the water, right? And these birds are sitting there floating in the, in the freezing cold water on top of it. And it's this mindset of taking your game back, taking it back to what it was. Um, I read a lot of books. and there's a, there's a book about Native Americans. They used to take rabbits and so they would hunt rabbits. You always see the pictures, the paintings of the rabbits hanging off the side of the, the horse, right? So they would take these rabbits and they would do the squeeze method. They would go from the ribs and it was like milk and a cow. They would squeeze all the guts and intestines out of the back half of that rabbit. So you can actually sit there and squeeze it. Everything pops out of the rabbit. No more guts, no more anything. And they hang that rabbit. So now it's still clean from dust, but there's no nastiness in there. It's amazing. You could take two rabbits, you know. Rear end one and keep one whole. The, the the flavor profile on those rabbits are completely different, even though you shot them on the same road in the same field in the same time. So, I think that's people's biggest problem is just being lazy. And what about cool, what about culinary stupid. technique? Like you know, overcooking, undersalting, just something simple that you see coming from maybe new hunters or even people that have been doing it forever that uh, could be a quick fix for folks that think you know this game doesn't taste good. Yeah. Get on Amazon and buy a $12 instant read thermometer. It's your best friend. Um, you can buy expensive ones. You can buy cheap ones. As long as it's, it reads that temperature, it'll work. And I think that's a huge hindrance. Of a lot of people as well as cooking it past where it should be cooked. Um, and what is that temperature in your opinion of past, you know, for ducks, it's gonna, medium, yeah. um, medium is too cooked for a, for a wild duck. You want to eat that duck, you know, rare to medium rare. Uh, and, and you want to eat, you know, even like quail and duck, you know, dove. I grew up eating dove where they would, we'd breast them out. We'd season them with, you know, whatever, 
Lowry's seasoning salt, throw it on the grill till it was done. We're sitting there chewing it. I'm like, this sucks, right? Well, look at, look at the French culinary cooks when they're cooking pigeon, right? They're cooking pigeon to 125 to 130 degrees internal temperature. We don't have the same bacteria we're going to be found in the fecal matter of a domesticated chicken, you know, from your uh, name, the bacteria that's going to make you sick. We don't have that when we're looking at wild animals. And so when we're processing these animals, we're clean. Our hands are clean. There's no cross-contamination. We can cook those animals to that temperature of that 130, like the French cuisine. And all of a sudden your dove don't taste livery. They're tasting beautiful. You know, duck, when you're overcooking it, they can really take that strong iron taste, right? Well, the more it cooks, as the juice is going in the middle, it's going to condense all that flavor. And you're going to take that bite and be like, oh, I just don't like it. And so when you understand that that medium to medium rare on a lot of animals is perfect, like the perfect temp for like a steak for me, for like a venison steak, it's like 130. So pulling it off at 125, letting it rest to 130. Well, I don't have the crust on it. Well, then reverse sear it. Pull it at 110. Get a flaming hot cast iron skillet at 500 degrees. Put some butter, some oil, some garlic, some rosemary, some thyme. Roll that sucker around in there. It's going to get hard and crusty on the outside. Slice into it. And you're still at 130, 135. And so... All of those aspects of understanding temps and times are completely different. Like even this Thanksgiving, I had 33 text messages of people saying, Hey, how long do I, do I cook my, my Turkey? I was like, it's not about time. It's about temperature. As soon as the bird hits 165, pull it. Well, yeah, but how long is that going to take? No clue, <laughs> no clue at all. And so you read these recipes of these people and a lot of these wild game people too, they'll, they'll put out there like, you're going to cook your deer for, for 45 minutes. And I'm like, well, your deer is going to be overcooked. Um, sometimes you'll put on that backstrap and it'll only take five minutes to reach temperature. Sometimes it'll take 33 minutes to reach temperature. It just all depends on the animal. You know, if you're getting a fatty gadwall uh, off the rice fields, you know, like your, like your guy you were talking to earlier, it's going to cook differently than you are a little green wing or cinnamon teal right there this cooking a duck breast isn't just cooking a duck breast it's understanding the size of that breast and pulling it at the temperature of that breast versus how long it's actually going to take hey jeremiah one thing that i'm a huge fan of too is uh brining waterfowl um i use a, a brand i just use high mountain seasonings they have a turkey and poultry brine something i just you know not not for a long period of time especially like a mallard a pintail or something like that depending on the duck but just something that really takes, you know, a lot of people eat waterfowl, it's that blood taste that you want to get out of there. Whether it's leave it in the fridge, you know, you can get the, take care of that yep. too. And I put it in, sometimes I put it in some some paper towels, it kind of pulls out a little bit of that. But I've, I've, I've used duck, that brine, really effectively. And I, I, I talked to everybody about that. Are you a fan of brining waterfowl? Yeah, I think brining, adding a moisture back to something. So meat is like a sponge. And so it's super porous, right? If you actually look at them under a microscope, it looks like just cutting into a, a kitchen sponge. It's so full of just all these different fibers and tendons that touch. And so what happens to a lot of people is when they're letting that bird thaw, they're letting it thaw into its own juices, which is a negative aspect of it, right? So it's releasing all the, all the stuff it wants to release, and then it's slowly sucking it all back into it. So when you are adding something else to it, so... I'm not a big fan of like the buttermilk brine, you know, like people like, Oh, just put in buttermilk for two days. I'm not a fan of that. Cause it really changes the flavor and the texture of the meat. Like I love eating wild meat. And so I'm like, I don't just want to eat, you know, a biscuit that tastes like a duck. And so, but using the brines, what you're doing is as it's 
releasing, it's now absorbing into a positive flavor, right? Does that make sense? Yep. And so it's like, if you take a sponge, you squeeze it out, you put it in dirty water, you're gonna have a stinky, dirty sponge. If you squeeze out a sponge, you put it in clean water, it's gonna absorb the clean water. And so thinking about it in terms of that, but I also like, I love like hanging my ducks in the fridge for like two or three days. I have a, I have a small at-home dry ager. And so even throwing it in the dry ager for, for four to five days, uh, guts out because I don't care. I, I think it's gross that people leave guts in their animals because you don't know if you gut shot a, a duck or a pheasant either. And so letting that meat hang and really start to relax, right? And letting all of the negative kind of come out of it, I think is a, is a huge benefit. But brining is, I'm all about it. And like brining, I'm all about, I, mean, I love brining wild turkeys, especially because they're so lean. Um, and some of those early season ducks that you're getting that are super, super lean, I think brining them is, is a great, method when you are lacking that fat yeah i just think it's you know back to kind of what you said before i think you know as a big game hunter when you pull the trigger they say the work starts there and i think that's true with anything right if you're gonna i mean i i'm the same way as you did when i hunted as a kid and we would shoot ducks and come home and my sisters and my mom would be quacking at the dinner table and we shot these things we're gonna eat them and they weren't good they were not good (laughs) and so i mean i've just been fortunate through this job you know getting to be around folks like yourself and understanding and just just kind of soaking up all the things. I mean, it's it's something that, you know, you take care of that animal right when you put it down. And, you know, back to your antelope story, I mean, I've heard so many of the same things that, shoot, this, you better get on that animal, skin it out, throw it in some, within, you know, minutes sometimes or else, mm-hmm. or else you don't have one. And, you know, just like with big game with deer, you know, I just had, I felt like for the last six weeks, all I've been doing is cutting up deer because I have been and I've had a good year and, you know, I let them sit in my fridge. I have a fridge and quartered them up, and I hung them for ten days before I cut on them. And and uh, and the same with ducks. I'll I'll do just like what you said, Jeremiah. I'll put them in the fridge and and let them sit there for a while, and then get to them a few days later. I mean, and uh, and taking care of that blood, getting it out of there, brining them for waterfowl. I think it's a must. You know, yep. I think it's you know you don't have to do it for you know some people put them in it for their day. I like duck. I don't want to do that. I want to yeah. take the taste yeah. and flavors of yeah. duck, but just that. There's a little edge on it. Maybe get, draw out some of that blood that you haven't gotten out in your before you cleaned it and stuff like that. So, yeah. yeah. And also, you got you, you got to think about what the animal's eating, right? Um, you're you know a reason a lot of people don't like diver ducks is because what they're eating when they're diving, right? And so you'll get that negative aspect to diver ducks. But if you're shooting rice patties on diver ducks, they're phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Like I've even eaten really good coot off of rice fields because all they're eating is good, right? They're not, they're not like going to the pond at, you know, Worcester, which has been there since the the eighties and it's all just this brackish mud and that's what they're feeding off of. Then that you're sitting there going, gosh, this, this freaking canvas back is disgusting. No, you're looking at birds and what they're eating. Same thing applies with all big game animals, right? If you're going into an area, so like a, like a low mountain elk is going to taste completely different than a high mountain elk just based on what they're eating. You know, you're not sitting there eating that low mountain sage elk when they're like, oh, this tastes like sage. But when you get that animal, that's where you sit there and say, okay, what pairs well with sage, right? Instead of trying to mask the flavor, how can you elevate and enhance that flavor? So garlics, gingers, soys, that all enhances uh, sage. Think about Asian style cooking with sage really, really, really pairs well. And so, okay, so maybe I'm not going to take this. If I'm going to make burger ground out of it, you know, I'm going to go ahead and make a teriyaki burger with it. 
or I'm going to make some spicy peanut slaw to go on top of it or fill in the blank. Right. And I think once you start to think outside of your chilies, your, your, you know, your spaghettis and your poppers, meat is meat. And so once you start to treat meat as meat, then it really opens up your culinary world to say, Hey, I can do whatever I want. You know, what's your favorite beef dish? Great. You know, you can do that with duck. It's got the same sort of texture and flavor, you know, or flavor profile when you bite into it as, as beef. So take your, take your, you know, whatever your favorite dish is with beef and recreate it with duck. And you'll be blown away that it's not just a popper or a breast that's just been cooked with beer. You know, I've got a question for, you know, somebody who has the culinary experience and I've been duck hunting a long time and heard different aspects of this, but I've opened up, um, say, you know, pintail that I've been harvested in a rice field in January and their fat is just like white, white. And then you mm-hmm. harvest a gadwall in the Susu marsh brackish water and you open up and it is like almost yellow. radioactive <laughs> orange, yellow. And then is it true that their fat color will take on sort of kind of what their flavor is going to be? 100%. Um, yes. So it's same thing when think about someone's finishing a heritage hog, right? So you go to the grocery store, you buy a hog or, or you go somewhere, you buy a high end hog. There's always a finishing period, right? The reason you have a finishing period, even if you're going to buy a cow, they bring them in the stockades and they have a finishing period um, where they're going to pack them full of whatever kind of that fat flavor, fat texture, fat marbling that they want. So if you look at guys who are raising Peking ducks, they've got a feed that they're feeding them. And then before they're going to harvest them, before they're going to you know kill them and put them on a table, they're going to start doing a finishing feed. And so that applies to all, all critters. And so, there are some animals that just have a different color fat. Like you shoot a zebra, it's going to have a neon orange, yellow fat. No matter where you shoot it, that's just the fat of a zebra. And some of you guys are like, what? You shot a zebra. They're phenomenal horse meat. <laughs> if we could, if we could legally hunt horses, I'd be doing it every day. Um, and so you really have to look at those characteristics. Like I've shot coot off of everything and they still have that same kind of yellow, nasty fat, right? shoot um sometimes pheasant no matter what they're eating they'll have that same sort of orangish you know yellow fat going through them but when it comes to a duck you're really going to tell the flavor on what they're eating with that brackish water and the bugs the bugs are going to have a different you know make to them that are going to create a, a, di- a different fat i've shot bear off of blueberry fields you know or blueberry the side of a mountain that's covered in blueberries and their fat is purple and their fat tastes like just sweet blueberries like i love making biscuits with you know, blueberry bear fat. Mm. And so, but then there's also bears that are eating trash in Montana. These guys are out there just scrapping them to try to bring bear in that are completely inedible because of, because of what they're eating and what they're doing. So do you, uh, on the back to the ducks, do you recommend, say you shoot a gadwa with that orange fat, do you recommend, you know, getting rid of that skin and fat and, and preparing it in a different way? Or are you still okay to leave skin on and bake it or grill it with it on? Yeah. I mean, you can always, you can always render that fat out. Um, but even when it comes to that case, you can always skin the duck, keep like pluck it, skin it, keep that skin, scrape that fat off and then use that skin as something to wrap back around it, you know, or using that as a crispy duck skin as a topping. Um, once you get kind of that negative fat off of it, but again, it all comes down to the taste of it. You don't want to throw out all the ducks. If you're like, you know, that fat really doesn't have any, have a negative taste to it. It was just a different color. But there are some ducks that I'm like, you know what? Yeah, I think I'm just going to skin that sucker out or throw them in the crock pot and break it down for tamales or tacos or something. 
you mentioned that you shot some some coot in your day. I mean, how are you preparing that? I think most people would, you know, be disgusted by it. But we've had some folks um, that have harvested coot and served it to people without them knowing. And everyone's like, oh, this is delicious. What is it? And then they're like, it's coot. And they're like, turn green. Oh, I'm, I did the same thing. So we were at San Jacinto um, and we were hunting and we were coming off of uh, one of the primary blinds, like the bee blinds. And there were these two Asian gentlemen and they were coming out with two trash bags completely full. And I'm like, what did they shoot? Like, I'm thinking, Oh, they're going to get in trouble. Like, because we heard so much shooting over there and we're like, what? Like, are they just bad shots? No, there was no calling, no nothing. And they get to the checkout about the same time we are. And they dump out 50 coot. And I'm like, you just shot 50 coot. Like good on you. Like, thanks for the duck eggs, like for, for, for the next year. But like you, why? And this, this Filipino dude starts telling me about all these different dishes and they prefer that meat over, he kept saying the disgusting colored ones. Um, <laughs> I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, are you talking about a Northern shoveler? Cause if you're talking about a shoveler, I, I agree with you. Like those aren't the best tasters, but I'm like, I've got, I've got six, you know, cinnamons right here. And I would, I would eat their legs before I would eat a coot. And so this guy's like, no, 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 no. Amazing, amazing meat. And I was like, all right, cool. Here's my phone number. Call me. I'm going to come over. So I literally followed them home. They were in Marino Valley. So they weren't very far from, from San Jack. And we go there and all his little kids coming out. They're all super excited. His little nephews come out and they start plucking the coot. I'm like, they're plucking coot. Like I thought they were just going to breast these suckers out, grind them, you know? And so I'm like, well, what meals are you going to make? So he started talking about how coot have a very fishy, muddy flavor. And I was like, Yes, they do. You are, you are 100% correct. In Asian cuisine, what do they use a lot of? Fish sauce, oyster sauce, right? So they love that flavor. And so they started making egg rolls. They started making uh, soups. They started making stews. And I'm eating this going, this is incredible. Like, this is phenomenal. So then I started thinking, well, what other cultures eat sort of that fishy flavors and really love it? So I'm like, all right, Cajun. Cajun cooking. Let's try it. So I actually took, I went out and I shot, I shot my lemon of coot. Everyone thought I was crazy. I came home and I ground up all the coot with a little bit of pork fat. And I made andouille sausages out of the coot. And then I made a gumbo with the andouille coot sausage. And one of my friends, Sean Kibler was another guy who made andouille sausage. And it's what we were talking about. And served it to a ton of people. I'm like, Hey, this is a duck gumbo. And they were like, this is amazing. Oh, this is, oh, they're, I'm like, okay. Well, they're like, what duck was it? And I was like, coot. And they're like, and so I think we, once you take away the negative stigma on something, right. And you understand the flavor of it, just like I was shooting Audad and a bunch of Texans tell you Audad's the worst tasting meat out there, right? Dirty, nasty, smelly sheep. And I was like, well, I'll, I'll, I'll prove it wrong. So we went out and we shot an Audad. We bring it back and I'm like, okay, well, again, what cultures eat old, smelly, stinky sheeps and goats. Okay, so we're looking at Indian culture. We're looking at Pakistani culture, pretty much any any Middle Eastern culture. We're looking at Irish and Scottish or eating mutton. Okay, so how can I take those recipes and apply them to the same actual animal, right? A, a, an old Billy or an old ewe. And I cooked for a bunch of t- hardcore hunt, like Texas hunters, and they ate the entire table. 
And then I'm like, okay, well, here's a video of what we shot today. And they all watch it. They're like, we just ate odd dad. Mm-hmm. I'm like, yep. And so I think, again, once you take away the negative mm-hmm. stigma or as, as, as us in, in the USA, like you gross, right? You take away the you factor of it. Food is delicious. And I think we just have this negative because we try to cook it like, like a chicken, right? When it, it can't be cooked like that. It needs to be cooked on its own term because it's its own meat. Yeah. And I think that's, what's hard too, is like when you're trying to prepare for, prepare for somebody and they think wild game and then they see that, you know, rare to medium rare duck breast that's sliced and they immediately like kind of get grossed out and like, Oh, I'm not going to eat that. But once they do eat it, they're like, Oh wow. I've been missing out. That's, you know, it's perfectly marbled. It's hard crust on the outside. You know, it's perfect, perfect cut of yeah. meat, but it's getting to kind of over that hurdle, which is to me the battle. Yeah. yeah, I think it's it's awesome for me when I cook something, especially in my neighborhood, my block. My neighbors know when I'm cooking. I have one neighbor that I'm always bringing him down, whatever it is, and he just says I'm never I'm never moving. <laughs> and I think and I think you'd agree with this, Jeremiah. That you know, I think food we kind of touched on earlier is such a bridge to the non hunting community, especially you know we just went through these times with COVID. I, every hunter I knew was like, I don't need to go to the store and buy meat. I'm good. Yeah. And yeah. so I think it's just awesome that there's folks like yourself out there putting out these recipes that are so easy for the average person to, to go do. I'm such a big fan of those types of things because, you know, you got to put stuff out there for hunters to enjoy Like myself, when we didn't, we, we didn't know how to cook it and it wasn't any good. It was, it was, we ate it cause we shot it. But now to be able to take that and, you know, I, I it's funny with my kids growing up, I used to make tacos and I wouldn't tell them it was deer meat, but I wouldn't tell them. And, and their parents would say, my, my daughter never, likes tacos at home. And I'm like, well, it's deer meat. And it was a different flavor. You prepare it properly. But, you know, how much, how much do you see, Jeremiah, where you're at, where, you know, that food that you're preparing is such a bridge to the non-hunter? And I think it's, to me, I think it's just, it's another way to combat the craziness and the state that we go for. The negativity on hunting is food and wine are always something that people have common with. And when you, you know, I, I don't know, I'm sure you've put plenty of times, you put recipes in front of people and you know, I don't want to say you change their mind, but I think you make them think a little bit differently about hunting. Yeah. My, uh, one of my biggest stories is a couple of years ago, I was getting some hard, hard, hardcore death threats. Uh, PETA put out my phone number. They put out my personal information. And so I was getting like four to 500 calls a day. And my wife was getting mad at me because I was answering every single call. <laughs> She's like, just turn your phone off. I'm like, no, there's, if there's one person that I can change their mind, and I pick up the phone and it'd be like, bleep, 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 bleep. And I'd be like, God bless you. And right. Or there's someone like, oh, I can't believe you did that. And well, well, let me tell you why I did this. Well, through that whole thing, there was this gentleman uh, who was very hardcore, like to the point where I could have called the cops and had him arrested. But I just showed him respect and love. And I was like, hey, this is why I do it. Let's talk. Let's have a conversation. And he was open to a conversation, right? And so he started following me on social media. Every day he would ask me questions. I'd post a recipe and he'd be like, why? And we'd have this full on conversation. Well, six months go by and he's like, I think I want to go dove hunting with you. And I was like, you want to what? He's like, I want to go dove hunting with you. And I was like, uh, well, uh, this is the guy that just said he wanted to string me up by a flagpole and gut me like I got a deer. And I was like, well, get your hunting license. The only thing I can't do for you is take your hunter safety course. Everything else from guns, ammo, spots, 
I can do, but I cannot go to the class for you. And I kind of left it hanging. Like, here you go. Figure it out. Well, it's middle of August. And he writes me and says, okay, I, uh, I got my hunting license. And I was like, what? Like, this is a hardcore vegan. Hadn't eaten meat in 21 years. And I'm like, you gotta be, you gotta be crazy. Right. And you continue to follow through this story of him. He ends up coming on a hunt with, with my family. So every year I take out about 40 new hunters, youth, adults, whatever, family members, about 40 of us, we go in, we go out to Blythe and we have a dove hunt um, and we just kill it. Right. I got farmers out there that let us hunt fields. And so he's coming up and I talked like to my buddies, Hey, you guys got your guns. Cause he's pulling up. Like, I don't want to say he's going to shoot me, but he's, I don't know who this guy is. Right. And so he, he comes under the dove fields, all of us have our trucks and he pulls up in a Prius and I'm like, of course, of course it's a Prius. <laughs> right. And he gets out of, he gets out of his car and I go up to walk up to shake his hand. And my brother's like, got his pistol, like, you know, just chest, you know, like all, and I go up and this guy shakes my hand. I said, all right, man, you ready for this? He goes, yeah, I'm ready for it. I'm like, perfect. Let's go to my truck and let's get you a gun. And everyone's still like, dude, you're going to give this guy a gun. I'm like, 100%. And so we walk over and get him a gun, show him how to work it. You know, we throw a couple, this is like the day before, throw a couple clays. Uh, okay, cool. Tomorrow morning, this is what time, this is where we're going to be. I'm going to set you up right next to me. My daughter's going to be right here. You're going to be right here. You know, like, he's like, okay. Dude's a little skinny beanpole guy covered in tattoos, comes out and doves start flying. And I'm like, you know, just drilling him. I look over and he's just watching him fly over. I'm like, okay. So I'm like, all right, Hey, coming right down at you. 12 o'clock right at I mean, it came right over the trees. Just like one of those, like your is just like barely, barely fluttering. I'm like, this is the perfect shot. Right. I go, whenever you're ready. And he lifts his shotgun up, shoots the bird and it drops like five feet in front of him. And I'm like, yeah, I'm all hooting and hollering. And he just stares at this bird. And I'm like, Oh crap. Right. So I put my gun in safety, set it down, look at my daughter. I'm like, Hey, go, go over with grandpa. I'll be right back. So I go walk over to him. Like, Hey, what's going on, man? He goes, I just, I just killed it. I was like, you did like it's dead. And I was like, but that's not where its story ends. I go, its story is going to end tonight when we're eating it and we're having a conversation about today and we're laughing and we're joking. And there's this whole story around that shot. And he sat there and I said, but <clears throat> if you're done, you're done. And I'm done. Also, we'll walk back to the car right now. He's like, you would be done. And I was like hundred percent, dude. Like there's nothing more than I would want to do than be done. And he's like, we're going to eat this bird. I was like, we're going to eat this bird. He goes, okay, well then I better get a couple more because that's not enough. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, all right. So I walk, I walk back over and he starts shooting. And, uh, we finish out and we go back to camp and he's like, Hey, teach me. And I was like, well, this is how you pluck them. They're really easy to pluck. This is how you skin them. This is how you breast them. Like there's the three methods that you can do on this bird. He's like, okay, great. And then we play in the river. We have a good time. And then that, that night at dinner, we go sitting around and I made uh, a bunch of, I made like an orange glaze for all the dove. And I'm grilling him on the Traeger and he comes over and I go, okay, this is your bird. Like I had left one leg on. So I knew that that was his very first bird he had shot. Right. <clears throat> and I hand it to him. I said, all right, 
And he goes, I haven't had a bite of meat in 21 years. My whole entire family is around this dude now, right? Like all, our <laughs> friends, all our family looking at this dude that looks nothing like us. And he sits there and he takes a bite of the, of the dove. I have a video. I, I've, I've shared it before. Um, it's still on my phone. Still like one of my favorites saved. And he starts like laugh, crying, smiling. And he goes, that's good. <laughs> that's been 21 years. And he goes, thanks, Jeremiah. Thanks. And to me, that's that epitome of coming at somebody with respect and food, right? I won him over by showing the respect to the animal, by making a, a beautiful, delicious meal, by having a cultural aspect behind the meal, by defining why we're doing it and who we're doing it for. I could have went out there and just blew the crap out of all my dove and be like, I'm done. Let's go. You know? And I didn't, I took the time to educate. I took the time to be there with him and I took the time to take the chance on him. Right. I didn't know this guy. We're now really, really good friends. He's actually taken his kids out. They're hunting pheasant. They're, they're bird hunters like crazy now. Hmm. You know, he'll go out and pheasant hunts and he'll show me these pictures. He ended up getting a bird dog because he loves bird hunting so much. And to think about a guy that was a vegan for 21 years, who now is an avid hunter feeding his family, telling a different story. He calls himself a hunting vegan. He won't eat any meat or animal byproducts unless he kills it himself. And so to me, I'm like, I respect you more than any other hunter out there because you're truly doing it for the meat and you're truly doing it for the experience. And I mean, that's just one story of the 10,000 stories that I have from a culinary side of, of hunting. And I don't I have no desire to become famous. I have no desire to go have a TV show on outdoor life and have my name plastered over shirts, but I have a desire to sit in a blind next to somebody who's never shot an animal before and cry with them like a freaking little schoolgirl when they shoot their first deer and, and hug and embrace this person and hear their story. You know, two weekends ago, we took out an 83 year old man on probably his last deer hunt. And with his, he had, it was an, it was a Navy veteran, um, was stationed over in um, for the in Vietnam before it was a Vietnam war. Then he was stationed over during the, the Cuban missile crisis. He was like the lat, the first defense at Cuba and hearing this guy tell these stories as his grandson is just all excited about him shooting a deer. That's why I do what I do. And then to be able to, at the end of the day, come and prepare a meal for somebody and I'll sit there and laugh and smile and cry together as we're eating food. Like, I don't care who you are. I don't care what you, what your background is, but when it's surrounded by food and laughter, I think it really, like I said, breaks that wall. We had a thing where we had a bunch of um, left and right wing crazy people. And I said, I got an idea. Let's bring them all to the same table. This guy's like, you're nuts, right? Like you're going to bring these people who are like at each other's throats. I'm left. You're right. Right after COVID, you need to wear a mask. F you right. This whole thing that's going crazy. And that they're at the dinner table. There's like five on each side and they are just at each other's throats. And all of a sudden I, I put out all this wild game. I had shot a huge hog, split the hog, had the hog out there, no utensils, just onions, peppers, you know, tortilla, fresh homemade tortillas, beans, rice. And I said, okay, today's dinner is all about your hands because from, you know, nothing has touched this meal, but my hands and so now it's your guys' hands that are going to touch this meal. So no silverware is even respectful enough. There was no arguing or fighting at all. As soon as the last bite was taken, all of a sudden it was like, well, you know what? You, my, my thought on, and I'm like, proved a fact that food shuts everybody up because it's such, a, it's such an equalizer. 
And if it can bring people together, be it a vegan meal, be it a, a, a deer meal, be it a beautiful mallard, then I'm all about it. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> speaking of that, we, we've in our R3 programs have seen, you know, especially those adult onset hunters, you know, kind of that farm to fork movement where we get all those calls of never hunted before, don't own a gun, not really pro gun. What do I do and, and how do I get into it? I, I do want to eat meat if I do harvest it myself. Um, we, we do a college camp program with a bunch of UC Davis students and a lot of them are, are vegan or vegetarian, but they're okay with shooting something and then eating it themselves. And we've seen a huge influx of hunters um, just from the food side of it, right? Where those folks would never get into hunting if it wasn't for the actual knowing where your meat came from, going out and getting it yourself, and then you know preparing the meal that way. So, yeah, and I think COVID. I think COVID was a, a big positive in that aspect of it. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Because well, of jumping that, license sales, right? Oh, yeah. But I think everyone, I know for me, for me personally down here in Southern California, when, when, all the gush, when all the grocery stores went out of meat, right? I have three giant freezers completely packed. Of, I mean, I shot 100 deer like in 2019 with all, between all my classes and stuff, right? I had literally like one whole thing was just 172, massive, 7.5, whatever. Just all ground. One was all steaks. One was all ducks and birds. One was all fish. Like you go in my garage, just walls of, of freezers. And so COVID hit and all these people started freaking out. And so I look at my wife said, all right. And I made care packages. I literally got boxes and I put six or seven different types of meat. I did, you know, Traeger. I know these guys that had Traegers did Traeger pellets. If guys had charcoal, I did charcoal briskets. And I just walked to doors, knocked on it, handed them. I'm like, here you go. If you need more, just call me. Right people that had never eaten wild game before are calling me like, Hey, I want to go get my license. <laughs> How do I do this? And I was like, cool, let's do it. And just from that, that, that 20 guys that I handed food to 16 of them are now hunters and go hunting with me, deer hunting, bird hunting, antelope hunting, pheasant hunting, duck hunting. Right. All because during COVID I said, Hey, I got you. Right. And, and they were like, Oh, you mean I can feed my family, but not have to go to the grocery store. I'm like, yeah. You know, and then also like we live on the ocean. Do you know, I don't, if COVID really went crazy, I was like, I, I have an endless supply of fish and lobster and seagulls. I've never eaten a seagull, but I could probably make them taste good. Huh. Right. Like I have an endless supply of food. Like I remember during COVID we were driving and there's a park by us called mile square park. And it's got like 10,000 Canada's out there. Right. And I remember we were driving by and my daughter goes, how many of those do you think we can get before we get arrested? I was like, <laughs> at least 10, right? Like, but that's my daughter's mindset too, is like, we don't need to go to the grocery store when they see these beautiful fat Canada's just eating grass out there. They're like, we can take those dad. I'm like, Oh yeah. Especially my girls with their 22s. I mean, they're hitting nickels at 50 yards. You don't think they can hit a freaking goose head at 50 yards. So I was like, yeah, bring it all day long. Like, bring on the shutdown because my family is going to be thriving while everyone else is, you know, trying to plug in an electric car. So. No, that's awesome. I'm, I've been scrolling your website and listening to you talk about, and I'm getting very hungry. And some of these uh, recipes look amazing. If you were to have to choose your favorite out of what you have currently on your website, what do you think that would be for recipe wise? Shoot, I don't know. There's like a hundred and something recipes on there. What's, what's, uh, give, give me some of your tops. Like, that's like choosing your favorite child. 
Uh, <laughs> you know you have one, you just don't want to say it out loud. Um, I would have to say probably my Super Juice Marinade that's on there. Um, it's got over a million pins. Uh, last month alone, it had 200,000 clicks on the website. Um, and so it's, it's a simple, easy, stupid marinade that you could marinate from a duck to a dove to a, to a deer to a moose. Um, all in between. And the story's on there about how I came up with the name. Uh, it was one of those deals. Where I was throwing a bunch of stuff together, <clears throat> marinated it, cooked it. My daughters are like, this is phenomenal. And I was like, oh yeah. So then I'm like, Hey dad, make that super juice marinade again. And I was like, what? Oh, the one you did that deer. And I was like, oh, I should probably write that down. Um, but it's become one of my most popular recipes on there. Um, cause it can be used for anything and everything. Um, and it really, it's got soy in there like soy sauce. So what that does is that helps actually break down and tenderize the meat. It's, it's stupid. Like you could throw a couple duck breasts in there, leave it in there for eight hours, take them out, cook it. It's going to change your mind on duck. And so I think if I had to look at one, that would probably be it just because it's so universal. Um, but then you get into some of the, some of the really fun, weird stuff that I do, like, you know, stuffing wild boar into little shooters of, I, I saw that one. I think I'm going to try yeah. that. That looks um, awesome. And so it's just one of those deals where <clears throat> I get my ideas when I talk to people and they are like, Oh, you know, like I have an orange pheasant recipe on there. And from years ago, I was guiding a bunch of pheasant people for our youth program out here. I and mean, you guys have it too up there uh, where they can put in, you know, like the family hunts. Mm-hmm. And uh, this dad had two sons and the two sons were hunting and the first son shot a pheasant. He was like nine years old. I'm like, dude, this is awesome. And his dad's like, ah, just, you can take it. Pheasant tastes like dirt. We're not eating it. And the look on this kid's face when he shot this animal was like, wait, I'm not going to eat it. And so I was like, Hey, what's your favorite dish in the entire world? Like one thing that you would eat. And he's like, orange chicken from Panda express. <laughs> I was like, what? Any dish? He's like, yeah. And I was like, all right, I'm going to create you an orange Panda sauce that you're going to cook with your dad, these pheasant. So take them home. And so they shot their limit, him and his brothers. And then they left. I took like, two weeks to really nail down this perfect recipe. My wife's like, I don't want to eat another piece of orange pheasant in my life. And I'm like, just deal with it. And, um, so I sent it off. This dad cooked it with his family and he writes back and goes, I want to apologize. That was phenomenal. And we had such a good time as a family cooking. Like, I really want to thank you for that. And so for me, it's listening to people's stories and understanding it, uh, as well as I've traveled the world. So what are things that people are eating? What are people, you know, what are some of these cultures that are eating things that we're throwing away? And so when I look inside the animal now, it's like, oh, gizzards, hearts, livers. Okay, great. Yeah. Well, hey, what, what's inside their, their gullets? Okay, well, okay. So that's their flavor profile. Like we shot a turkey and I opened up its, its whole entire gullet area. And I'm like, oh, look, it's full of rosemary and lemon seeds and lemon peel. I was like, all right. So I'm looking around. There's a whole bunch of wild rosemary growing. And then there's like a lemon orchard or grove, whatever they call it. I think it's grove because it's a – but anyway – I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to cook this bird with lemon and rosemary now because that's what it's been eating and that's the flavor that's going to be into it. And so all of a sudden this whole, ex, you know, this whole beautiful marry of rosemary and lemon come together that I create this dish. And my wife's like, make that again. And then I open up the next turkey and it's, you know, full of apples. Well, now I'm going to cook it with apples, right? So I think that's kind of where it comes to is don't be afraid to dissect your animal and really understand who they are and what they are as a, as a meat source. I think too, Jeremiah, one thing, and I know we just shared uh, this recipe of yours on social media, I believe, and it, and one that 
I think is the most underutilized part of a duck is its legs and thighs. And mm. I tell you what, I everybody that I talk to, I mean, I did a video on our, our own YouTube, and and it's just something that once you prepare them and you do them right, uh, I know your recipe is uh, over some nachos, but it starts with low and slow and cooking them in duck fat. Uh, I think, you know, if you're a duck hunter out there and you're not eating those day, legs and thighs, you're disservice to to your your own yourself your stomach because it's good stuff um but talk about that recipe that we just we just talked about it's a duck nacho right uh yeah i think it was like duck confit fries oh uh, fries I think, I think is what it was um yeah and i think for me it's it's always been about saving the legs yeah. um like five years ago with nwtf national wild turkey federation we started a whole movement called save the legs because i was sick of seeing guys shoot these big old 25 pound birds and only take the two little breasts off of it. And so what I did for that one is I measured out, I cooked, I, co- I took all the meat off the thighs, the legs, slow cooked it, weighed it out. And I'm like, you're throwing away three pounds of turkey meat, delicious shredded turkey meat that you could be eating that you just left in the, in the dump, in the dumpster because it's too much work. So then I said, okay, well, how can we do this with ducks and quail? Like little quail legs are my favorite. Like I'll cook a quail and just sit there and eat it like a little, oh, and then use a little leg as a toothpick afterward. It's phenomenal. Um, but for for ducks, um, they do hold this natural fat, even if you can't see the fat. There's still a marbleized fat within the meat itself, just like you would find in beef. That's why I always said, if you, if you really like a beef dish, try it with duck. Um, and so in this one, it makes it real easy because a lot of people might not have a lot of duck fat lying around. But um, kind of using that sous vide style method with cooking these legs so saving all those legs, save it all season long, like save a big bag of legs. Cause there's not that much meat. If you're getting a little teal, you're getting a little widgeon. There's not that much meat on those legs and thighs, but save them. Then throw them all. If you don't have a, a vacuum sealer or a fancy sous vide machine, that's, that's fine. But put them in a, in a double Ziploc bag, right? And then bring water up to whatever temperature you want. Usually you're shooting for like 125, 130. And then you're going to bathe those in that bag and slowly cook it. And you're going to let that meat itself cook and break down. And all of its own juices are what's going to go into that bag and start to cook it. If you want to throw some butter, some rosemary, some thyme, some garlic, whatever you want in there to slowly cook down that sous vide as well. And you're going to let that just go. You're going to let it go until you pick up that bag and that meat just falls away from the bone. And then you can utilize that meat however you want. If you want to put it on tacos, if you want to put it on top of pasta, if you want to put it uh, on top of whatever. I just happen to really want to make like a dirty loaded French fry with it. And it turned out incredible. Um, just cause I'm, I like fries. I'm from Southern California. Like we, we call it a California burger, right? Or a, a California burrito. We throw French fries and avocado in our burritos and call it a California burrito. Cause we're just, we're obsessed with fried potatoes. Um, and so utilizing that, that duck in a different way, I think is huge. Um, a lot more so than a lot of people that are just like, Oh, look, it's just a breast. Um, there's so much meat on those thighs and those legs when you keep them all together uh, and break that down. But yeah, go on, go on there and look. Um, and I've got a December recipe coming up and it's going to be wild boar that, that you guys are going to share too. So I think it's kind of cool that it's not just going to be duck. If you're out there hunting anything, we're going to have recipes for it. And I signed on for a whole year with you guys of sending recipes. So keep an eye on social medias because um, they're going to be up. So. Yeah, the, the website he's referring to is fromfieldtoplate.com. So if you want to go directly to that, that is the link. Yep. And then you guys are also going to be sharing it too. 
California Waterfowl is going to be sharing recipes all year long. So kind of excited about that as well. So I'm going to, I'm going to backtrack a little bit, but, um, so you got your, your beef allergy later on in life. Do you think that kind of jump started you into getting outside of birds and hunting, you know, big game or were you kind of already on that path? No, I wasn't on that path at all. I was a, I was a bird guy. Um, it really, that beef allergy thrust me into a world that I never expected I would ever be in. Um, I expected to finish out my life, you know, front of the house manager, you know, I was a GM at restaurants and doing that sort of thing. And when it came down to it, it was one of those deals where it was still just a hobby once I got into big game. So beef allergy, 2007, 2008, uh, 2009, 2010, 2011 bird hunting, uh, come into 11, that's when I met that dude out in the turkey or out in the archery range to go turkey hunting. And so that's where my big game career started. And then I just did kind of my own thing with antelope. I only hunted antelope. I didn't hunt any other big game. And that was 2011, 2012, 2013, uh, 2014. And then 2015, um, I had a, I went hunting with a buddy and we shot, you know, some blacktail and some muleys. And I was like, oh, this is fun. This is, you know, I'm already shooting 619 yards at antelope. So shooting hundred yards at a muley was like, this is easy, you know, like, and getting into them bedding and just waiting for them to stand up was a lot easier than crawling on my belly through, you know, Wyoming plains where the, the tallest piece of grass is six inches where I can sit up on a, on a ridge and glass. And then, uh, going into summer of 2017, I started from field to plate or the beginning of 2017 started from field to plate. It's just an online blog source uh, to go get recipes and stories about hunting. Really nothing of it, you know, nothing really. There was a couple of people following it. And then summer of 2017, I blew my calf muscle out all the way up in, into my Achilles. It went all the way up into my kneecap. And so I was out of work for six months. And during that six months, I was just like, I have nothing better to do. I'm just going to write recipes and learn how to photograph. And so I sat there taught myself how to take pictures. But I, I look back at those pictures I took back in 2017 and I, I'm like, why did people even start following me compared to what I'm taking now? Um, but back then, right. It was, it was still who I was today and started taking those pictures. And then it came time for me to go back to work. And I looked at my wife, I said, I don't want to go back. Like I want to do this for a living. <clears throat> and um, my wife's like, well, you, you, you haven't been this happy ever. And my wife and I have been together since senior year of high school. So she knew me better than anybody. She's like, you're happy. We've got two little girls at home. You know, you have a three-year-old and you have a, a five-year-old. Like, do what you're going to do. And I remember just like, okay, well, I don't know, you know, still hemming and hawing. And then I went to church that Sunday and our pastor was preaching on cannonballing. He said, in life, everyone says, just dive into something, right? He goes, but when you dive into a pool, the only person you affect is yourself, right? You want to make the, the perfect dive, no splash, just you're in the water. He goes, in life, you need to cannonball. You need to jump out, out, off that high dive and you need to commit because when you do a perfect cannonball, it affects everybody in the pool as well as everybody outside the pool. Your, your ripple goes all the way to the end of the pool and comes back to you 
and you hear all the people and you feel all the emotion that, that was in there. And all the people that are outside the pool just felt your, your impact by the splash. And now they're all soaking wet because of your decision. And I was like, okay, cool, cool, cool sermon. Hmm. And then he comes to me after and goes, Jeremiah, you know, I got what, 3,000 members in our church. And he's like, hey, that sermon was for you. And I don't know why. And I was like, ooh. And my wife's like nudging me like, I told you. And so we get home and I was like, man, I don't know what to do. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to cannonball. I'm going to, I'm going to go full force. I'm going to make a giant splash. And I'm like, I'm going to do this. So I went into work when I had to go back and said, Hey, I, I'm not coming back. And they were like throwing money at me. We got to keep you. We got, you know, you're, you're the trainer. You're the corporate guy. You're the, I was like, yeah, no, it's not about the money. Like I know I'm going to lose a lot of money doing this, but it's about my happiness and about other people's happiness around me. Cause right now it's like, I'm not happy. And so I quit the job and my wife said, give it two years, like work your butt off for two years with what I'm making and what our savings is. You got two years. And I remember that first year I hunted 200 out of 365 days that year. I mean, I just gave it a go, traveled the entire world with any, anybody that wanted to, wanted me to come hunt with them. And, and I was like, all right, I'm going to do this. And that's what 2017, no, 2016, 17 to today. And now I'm making, you know, making a great living, hanging out at you know my house and cooking every single night for my family and my daughters don't eat domestic meat at all. And my wife's happy. I'm happy, you know, and I've touched how many other lives by this cannonballing into this pool that we call wild game. And I've been a part of a lot of professional hunters careers that I'm happy to look at and say, Hey, I was there when you did this, or I was a part of that. And I'm happy to be the guy that, you know, like on my Pinterest, you know, a lot of these females that come to my class are women, wives, girlfriends of hunters who hunters don't want to take them hunting, but want them to cook for them. And these ladies find a recipe on Pinterest. That's mine. They love it. And they see that I offer classes and they say, well, can women do it? And I said, anybody can do it. I don't care. And all of a sudden these women are going out and they're out hunting and out shooting their husbands and boyfriends, you know, and then I'm getting calls from these boyfriends saying, what did you do? <laughs> you know, sometimes it's negative, sometimes it's positive, but it's like just being there and being open to be a part of someone's life, I think is huge. And yeah, food did that. And I, and I, you know, and I don't ever look back at my food allergy and say, man, I wish I could eat beef. Like I thank God every single day that I'm allergic to beef because if I was eating beef, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation. How many lives wouldn't it be of, wouldn't have been impacted if I didn't cannonball into the wild game world? You know, and, and look at these old timers who are doing beautiful culinary dishes with wild game that no one's cooking anymore because it's not relevant. Like for me, food is food. I'm going to cook food for my family to eat, not to serve under glass at a party. Like, and that's how it's going to happen. And that's how most of America utilizes wild game meat. It's not something fancy for a party. It's I'm going to eat this every single day until it's gone. So. Man, that's a phenomenal story, and we're super excited to be sharing your uh, recipes with our members, and uh, we're just really looking forward to all the stuff that's coming. And just want to th- say thank you so much, Jeremiah, with uh, Field to Plate for coming out and joining us on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank Appreciate you. It. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Save It for the Blind podcast. You can find our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.